Well, when we read those verses just a moment ago in 1 Peter 3, part of this is so contrary to to our human thinking and to our human experience that it, it, it almost borders on the absurd. Look back. I mean, Peter says that when you suffer in this life, you are blessed. That statement goes against every fiber of our being, of my being. We spend so much of our lives trying to alleviate suffering or try to, trying to avoid suffering. And so we, things like convenience and ease and comfort and, and being things that are low risk, these are high values for us. Uh, today and in, in, in this culture, and whether we're conscious of them or not, that's just that. Those are those are things we really value. And so, when Peter says, "When you suffer, you're blessed," it sounds quite strange and radical to our ears. And so, but notice the clarifying statement he makes. He explains what type of suffering actually produces blessing. It's not it's not all suffering that that is 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 produces this blessing. It's, it's when we suffer for righteousness' sake that we will be blessed. We're not blessed when we suffer because we're idiots. Because we do dumb or reckless things. And, and I know many of us have suffered uh, physical harm because of those kinds of things. But we're not blessed when we suffer the consequ- as a consequence of our sin. We're not blessed when we suffer just for, for being jerks or when we suffer for bad behavior. We're blessed when we suffer for being Christians. For righteousness' sake. When we, as we see in verse 13, when we do good in a, in a biblical sense of good. And so Peter's writing to Christians in churches who are suffering because they live in a culture that's increasingly hostile to Christianity. And we, we can relate, and in, in some ways we cannot relate. As we alluded to this already, certainly our situation is not just like theirs uh, we don't know this level of social and physical and governmental opposition the way that they knew it. But Christianity is being increasingly marginalized in our Western culture and as it accepts and values and even legalizes those things that are out of step with the Bible. And so we, we can identify with that. But, but this theme of suffering, we've seen it much already, and, and it runs throughout this letter. But it's the, the, the focus that Peter has is not on the specific circumstances of the suffering that his readers were facing or that we might face. The, the suffering is more in the background. It's assumed, but it's not emphasized. Peter's greater burden is for his readers, for us, to, to see the sweeping scope of new life in Christ. That's what he really wants us to see. To see the, as he'll say in chapter 5 verse 12 as he ends his letter, to see the true grace of God and to stand firm in it until we're finally home. And so that's, that's just keep that in mind as we look into this passage together. So the, the big idea this week, it's similar to what we said last week, and it's a continuation of this passage, of this good life and knowing this good life in Christ in the midst of suffering and opposition but it's this, it's as sojourners, and that's how Peter describes us throughout this letter. We're sojourners, we're exiles, the world's not our home. We have this future inheritance, we're, we're citizens of heaven. And so as sojourners in this world, we're going to suffer. But we must be, pre- be prepared to suffer as those blessed by God so that we can bless others. That's what we'll see in this passage. So how do we suffer as a sojourner? First, first thing we're going to say this. Recognize the potential of suffering as a sojourner. That seems rather obvious, and we see this in verses 13 and 14 here. So look at verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Now, the the answer is sort of assumed here, and it's normally no one. No one. That's And that's the common grace of God. This is why we have governing authorities and, and to restrain evil in the world. And it's why God's given us a conscience. And so that's... That's normal. It's the same principle as we see in Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. And so, so, but what we see, that's not a promise without exception. That's a principle that's generally applied. And, and it generally holds true. And so a good life, in general, is more at peace than a wicked life. And, and again, I think our experience, we understand this. 
And, and so to us, verse 13 makes total sense because in generally, this has been our experience. But you consider Peter's first readers and what they were facing. Peter says, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? And his readers are probably thinking, all kinds of people. <laughs> all kinds of people. My boss fired me because of my Christian faith. My husband abandoned me when I trusted in Christ. People have stopped doing business with me because I'm a Christian and I don't know how we're going to make it. My neighbors won't talk to us anymore because we follow Jesus. The government's threatening me and my family because, because we're Christians. And so, so yes, Peter, there are, there are some who can harm me for being zealous for good. And so I, it's almost, I think, as if Peter anticipates that kind of response. And so he goes right into verse 14. But even if... Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And so he's saying there, there's, there is this potential that as sojourners in this world, as we will suffer for the sake of righteousness. And so, now you read that verse 14, and, 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 it, and I hope, if, you, if you're familiar with the Scriptures, it, that that sounds familiar to you. And so turn to Matthew chapter 5. It should call our minds back to Matthew 5, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. This Jesus is, has kind of breaking out in his teaching, and in particular in his Beatitudes, the way this sermon begins. Matthew chapter 5. And so in verses 3 to following, we have what we call the Beatitudes, because of that word blessed. Um, and, and these are characteristics that should show up in our lives as Christians. And so every one of these statements begins in this way, blessed. And so, again, it's the same word, it's the same word Peter uses in 1 Peter 3.14 where he says, those who suffer for the sake of righteousness are blessed, will be blessed. And Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 5. And so in verses 10 to 12, this is where we'll see our direct connection with 1 Peter 3. But let's start back in verse 3 of Matthew 5 and read it in its context. Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who, who, who realize they're bankrupt before God, they have nothing to bring. Blessed are they, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, mourn for their sin, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, the, the its power under under control, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And then you get verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for, the, for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so... We'll talk about how those who suffer and who are persecuted for righteousness sake, how they can be blessed. We'll talk about that in a minute, in the next point. But just think about this question. Why in the world would the world persecute Christians who are meek, merciful, pure-hearted peacemakers? I've been thinking about this a lot this week. Why, why does that kind of life attract such hatred and opposition? It seems irrational. And I, I, and I've been thinking about it, and there's many ways to answer that question, and, and there's some general statements we can make, but I, I want to draw your attention to John chapter 8. John 8, and I think we get to the, the gist of it in John 8, and, and again, we can look in other places, but Jesus is talking to unbelievers there, talking in particular to those who are seeking to kill him, and he, and he says to them, John 8 verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I am not of my own accord, but he sent me. And then Jesus asked them a question in verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? Now Jesus has been teaching. He is the best teacher in the history of teachers. This is God himself teaching these people. And yet, as he's teaching, they, they basically say, this is dumb. This is dumb. It makes no sense. And so he says, why don't you understand what I'm teaching you? And he doesn't wait for them to answer his question. Um, he, he tells them why they don't understand. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And then he tells them why that's true. Verse 44, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. 
And so here's Jesus' point. Every single person has one of two fathers. Either God is your father or Satan's your father. This is what he's telling them. There's no third group of people who's kind of spiritually neutral and, and unattached and fatherless. That's not the case. So if God is not your father or unbelievers, you won't be able to bear the word of God. And you're going to carry out the desires of your father, Satan himself. So brothers and sisters, this, why I'm saying this is, when you live your life in accordance with the will of your father, who is God, you are living in a way that, that people who have Satan as their father cannot stand. Whether you're conscious of it or not, they can't, whether they're conscious of it or not, they can't stand that you're living in direct opposition to the will of their father. This is, is in nature, in their nature. Listen, righteousness by its very nature is confrontational to a world that has the devil as their dad. And this is, we were all born in this condition, so it's not like we, we've, we got God, we're on God's side. No, it's only God's grace and mercy that we've been, that God is now our Father. But, but even when your righteousness is not preached and you're not, you know, putting it forward, just your righteous conduct, that's, this is what's behind all the anger that's just leveled against Christians and Christianity in the world. This is, this is what's behind it. And so the first thing Peter tells us, he says, back to 1 Peter 3, recognize the potential of suffering as a sojourner. And then he says something again that's really strange, and this is, this is, this is the same thing Jesus said in Matthew 5. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. So the second point that we see in this text is realize the blessing of suffering as a sojourner. I realize when we think about suffering, we think bad. I mean, uh, affliction, bad, ease, good. That's just a general principle that I have in life and a value of mine and probably one we all share. So we do almost, and again, anything we can do to avoid suffering. But Peter says that those who suffer for the sake of righteousness will be blessed. Now, again, remember Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verse 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when he says blessed, when Jesus uses that, and again, the same word Peter uses here, it's this enjoyment of the favor of God, the smile of God's approval. You suffer for being a Christian, suffer for righteousness' sake. You enjoy this warm smile of God's approval. And that's crazy. <laughs> you're suffering, you're, you're persecuted, you're being slandered, you're... you're, you're <coughs> Reputations being drugged through the mud for just for being a Christian, for doing what's right. And and Jesus says, You're blessed. Rejoice. Be glad. That's counterintuitive for us. So the question for us is in what ways are we blessed when we suffer for the sake of righteousness? I think as Peter uses this and, and says this. If, if we suffer in this way, you will be blessed. It seems to be pointing forward, which is exactly what Jesus does in Matthew 5. There, your, your reward in heaven is great. So we've been singing already about heaven and, and this reign of Jesus and this reward that's coming. And certainly that's been an emphasis in Peter's letter, this future inheritance that is ours and is kept in heaven for us and we're being guarded by the power of God until we receive it. And so, so certainly that's it. And so... As, and as Jesus says here, we have this great reward in heaven. What, what does that mean? Well, we don't have time to explore all that Scripture teaches about this heavenly reward that we'll know. Let me just say, whatever your concept of great is, it will be greater. And so you can't outgreat God, the creator of the universe, in terms of the conception of what the greatness of this reward in heaven will be. And so... The reward, the joy, the peace, the happiness, the fulfillment of that, that you're going to receive in heaven when you receive this inheritance is going to blow out of the water whatever suffering you experience now on this earth because of your identification with Christ. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, we, we don't lose heart. We're suffering. We don't lose heart for the light, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so this is part of why Peter says, you will be blessed if you suffer for righteousness sake. Because there is this reward that's coming that far surpasses any of the affliction that you face now. And so there, there are other reasons though, I think, and I, again I've been thinking about this week. Why, why, can, why, does Je- why does Peter say, and why does Jesus say that we, we're blessed when we suffer for righteousness sake? Let me just give you a few other reasons I think we see in the New Testament. And one of these is right out of 1 Peter. The first one is it identifies us with Jesus. We're going to see this in 1 Peter 4, but when we suffer for the sake of righteousness, 1 Peter 4, 12-14, we share in Christ's sufferings. In some way, we're identified with Jesus. The apostles understood this, so when they were, when they were arrested, and when they were threatened, and when they were beaten and bloodied, and, and told not to preach anymore for, for the gospel, or preach the gospel anymore, in Acts 5.41, they walked away rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. There's this identification with Christ that we have when we suffer for righteousness' sake. A little small illustration of this, George Whitfield, who, who, who faced, often faced hostile crowds as he preached in public spaces, and, and even when he, when he was preaching and when he was just walking down the streets, and he wrote in his diary about an open-air service in which he preached, and he said this, I was honored by having stones, dirt, rotten eggs, and pieces of dead cats thrown at me. I don't know what that was a thing, cutting up cats and throwing them at people like rotten tomatoes or something, but why does he say that? I'm identified with Jesus, and even in suffering, especially in suffering. So another way that we're blessed is it identifies with the prophet, us with the prophets. And this is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He, this is one of the, one of the ways we're blessed. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And he's saying that to be an encouragement to them. And to us. So, so, when we suffer for our devotion to Christ, we join this great role of honor. Um, Noah, and Abraham, and, and Jacob, and Moses, and Elijah, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Daniel, and on and on and on. You, you have this list of these folks in Hebrews chapter 11, and, and it's toward the end of that chapter, he says, Others suffered mocking, and flogging, and even chains, and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn. In, they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They were. They they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, men of whom the world is not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And so, you think of you as you as you have opportunities to suffer for righteousness' sake. You think about those prophets, and you get inside their hearts, you get in their guts, and, and, and you learn to long for heaven the way that they did. And this is like, we, we begin to think like Moses, who considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And so, this is part of the blessing, we're identified with God's messengers. And then third, we're, we're, part of this blessing is, it, it, is suffering. It helps us to grow in God's grace. James 1, 2-4, passage we're familiar with. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's not limited to persecution, but it certainly includes that. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so all sufferings, including persecution, suffering for righteousness sake, it's, it, they're, they're instruments in the hands, in the gracious hands of God to change us, to shape us, to help us, and to grow us. So we don't invite suffering and opposition. We, we don't go looking for it. We don't revel in it and just find great gladness and happiness in it and pursue it. No, but if suffering for righteousness does come, we, we, we see it through the lens of Scripture. And we give it a hearty amen. We give a hearty amen to the psalmist's testimony that was good when I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And one more way in which we're blessed as we suffer for righteousness' sake, it opens doors for the gospel. It opens doors for the gospel. Um, Philippians 
1, 12 to 13, Paul has this testimony. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me and in the context, the things that have happened to me are those sufferings that he's endured, insults and false accusations and slander and beatings and imprisonments and stonings and death threats. All these things that have happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And so when we see suffering, we see it in our own world today, and as we pray for the persecuted church, it's easy to see persecution and suffering as this impenetrable roadblock to the gospel. But in reality, God is sovereign even over that, and He often uses suffering to propel the gospel forward and to open new doors. All right, so some of the things we see. We, we recognize the potential of suffering in this way. We realize that there's blessing in it. And third thing that, that Peter says in verse 14 is we must resist the fear of suffering as a sojourner. At the end of verse 14, he says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now listen, we can know in our minds that that we might have to suffer as sojourners, as exiles, as pilgrims in this world. We, we can even know that there will be blessing one day in heaven if we do. But we still struggle with fear in the present. We can still find our hearts troubled. And it doesn't have to be a death threat. It can be a little comment on social media and we are just shaken, shut down. And so, um, so as he says, don't, don't be afraid. This fear, what is fear? Um, let me just say it this way. Fear, it's like we're playing, we're pretending to be a prophet of doom. We're, predict, we're making predictions about the future in the most dark terms with, that, that are actually void of gospel hope. And so it's not, it's not like we stick our head in the sand and say, oh, things are only just going to be bright and sunny ahead. That's not it. But we're, we're looking forward and we're, we're, we're painting the future in dark, the darkest hues without any rays of the gospel shining in. That's what we do when, we, when we're afraid. But for us, this is the whole point of this letter, hope is alive. Hope is alive. So we, we don't need to fear, regardless of what kind of suffering we may experience, we and we, we have we we can be courageous because we have gospel hope. That's how the whole letter this is the whole point of the letter. Peter seems to have in mind uh, a prophecy from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter eight, verse twelve. Isaiah eight twelve says, Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. That that context of I, Isaiah eight, the prophet speaking to the people of Israel, they're frightened, they're, they the there's this mighty and vicious Assyrian army that's that's surrounding them and, and threatening them as a people, and it looks like they're just going to come wipe them out. Defeat is imminent, and, and, and they're, they're vastly outnumbered. The situation seems hopeless. And Isaiah, God through the prophet Isaiah, says to them, Don't, don't fear. There's a mighty army that's all around you. <laughs> don't fear. Yes, yes, they have more soldiers, but you, say, you have something that they don't have. The Lord is on your side. That's essentially what he's saying to them in Isaiah 8. And so Peter exhorts and encourages uh, us and, and his first readers, these suffering sojourners, in the same way. I mean, this is the number one command in the Bible. This is the most oft-repeated command in Scripture. Do not be afraid. Don't, don't fear, nor, nor be troubled, Peter, the way Peter says it here. Now, again, we, we talked about this last week. Peter knew about this kind of fear personally. He's not writing as one who never really struggled with this. No, eh? and that, that greatest illustration of this in Peter's life is on that night um, that Jesus was arrested. He's standing trial before the Sanhedrin. It's this dark, cold night, and Peter's kind of watching things unfold from a safe distance, and he's observing and trying to keep his eye on Jesus, and but not to stay in the shadows. But it's cold, and so he just keeps inching closer and closer to this fire that's in the courtyard. And as he comes near that fire to stay warm, uh, the servant girl notices him and sees his face. And, and she says, aren't you, aren't you, you know Jesus, aren't you with him? And Peter's like, no, 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 that's not me. And denies it to the servant girl. And then again, over the next hour or so, two more times, 
this, this, this statement is made to Peter. You're, you're with Jesus. You know him. And again, both times, Peter denies it the last time with expletives. And then the rooster crows, and just like Jesus said, you'll deny me uh, three times. And so, what, what's behind those denials of Jesus? It's fear. It's fear. Peter he is a prophet of doom, void of gospel hope. He sees his life in the future if he identifies with Jesus in his suffering as, as, as being worse uh, for that. And so, but now, on the other side of the empty tomb, and, and after much sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in his life, he, he's writing this letter, and he's full of living hope, and he's telling them about this bright future and this inheritance that awaits them. And, and even those who are suffering, and, and, and suffering immensely for the sake of the gospel, he, he, he encourages them, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be troubled. And we need this word. Because fear is epidemic. In our day, I mean, it's, this it's true in the church, but it's it's the, even the wider culture is recognizing recognizing this. I mean, psychologists are saying this is the number one issue that they're, they're, we're dealing with in our, as a culture. It's fear, anxiety, worry, put whatever name on it. But even, again, even as Christians, we we struggle with this, and and there are all kinds of fears that we face. But fear of suffering for the sake of righteousness is certainly one of them. You know, sure, as I said earlier, we're not, we don't, we're not suffering like our spiritual siblings worldwide are. We, they're being disowned and beaten and tortured and imprisoned and killed for their faith in Christ. And the, so the threats may be less severe for us, but they're real. And, and we can be afraid. We hear stories of lawsuits and court action and court decisions and protests and boycotts and smear campaigns on social media and all these Things and it's easy for us to fear. It's easy for us to be afraid. Some of you may fear the potential job loss or being passed over for promotion. Some of you have dealt with this, specifically related because of the fact that you're a Christian and there are values you have that you you, you have to hold to in good conscience. Some of you may fear the threat of being cut off by your family, and and some of you have been cut off by your family because of your devotion to Jesus Christ. But even if you're if you're not so afraid for yourself, if you're a parent or grandparent or great grandparent, I think you have to admit that you do fear for the next generation. And you you fear what's what may be coming as as they remain faithful to Christ in a, an increasingly hostile culture. What what will this life be like them? And so but to us the Bible screams to us from two thousand years ago don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't, don't be troubled by what you see going on around you. That's not like, oh, okay, that worked back then. You don't know what we're facing today. Oh, no, we don't even know. We don't, what we're facing doesn't even touch what they're facing. Again, it's the greater to the lesser. They shouldn't be afraid. We certainly shouldn't be afraid. So, how, so, so he says, don't be afraid. But that's nice to say, okay, just stop, stop being scared. All right. I've tried that. It's not so easy. Just, you know, quit, quit being afraid. You tell that to your kid who's got some fear of, of some bad thing happening. Stop being afraid. It's easy. That's not what Peter says. How do we, how do we fight this fear? How do we fight our souls being troubled and, 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 and the unrest in our spirits as we, as we look at of, of, of the circumstances and the situation around us? What do we do? How do we fight fear? With fear. We, we raise our fear. We, we throw water on fear of man and fear of circumstances and we throw fuel on our fear and reverence for Jesus Christ. This is what he says. It brings us to the fourth point. Reverence Christ while suffering as a sojourner. Reverence Christ while suffering as a sojourner. Verse 15. But, again, don't be afraid, but, this adversative here, to the contrary, but, Honor Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts. And so he's saying, we, we're inclined to put the weight where it doesn't belong. We're, in, we're inclined to, 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 to make much of the threats of man and much to the difficult circumstances we're in and to make little of Christ. And Peter says, no, fear Him, reverence Him. Honor the Lord, Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts. He's... he's 
he's this holy Lord. He doesn't have some authority over some people in some places. It's not as if Jesus has this kind of local authority over the church, but outside the walls of the church, outside of God's people, then he's, you know, that's outside of his jurisdiction. No, he has all authority in heaven and on earth. All authority over all peoples in all places at all time. There's no one, there's nothing that's outside of his jurisdiction. This is what Peter's saying. Do you think that might speak some to our fears? If we really lay hold of that? If we really honor in our hearts Christ the Lord as holy? And he doesn't just encourage us by saying, this is who Jesus is. Let me just remind you that, that Jesus is the Lord and he's, and he's holy. There's no one like Him. That's true. Jesus is objectively Lord. He's objectively holy. It doesn't, we don't make Him more or less holy, more or less Lord by how we treat Him. No, not at all. He is who He is. He's fixed. But He says to us, in your hearts, honor Him as the Lord as holy. I, I've heard it illustrated this way, and I don't remember who, who I heard this from, but I've heard the comparison that human hearts are like stringed instruments, and so if you play guitar or you play violin or some stringed instrument, no matter how, you, how perfectly you tune that instrument, you're going to have to tune that instrument again and again and again. I'm playing guitar this week at Vacation Bible School. My fingers are just killing me because I don't play any other time of the year anymore. And uh, so, but but I, I every every session before every time we led music, tune the guitar, tune the guitar. It's always out of tune, and the temperature changes, and humidity, and all those kinds of things. It, 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 but there's this there's this constant tension on those strings that's pulling them out of tune, out of tone. And, and 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 that that sound that it's supposed to have it's it's moving them moving them away from that proper sound and so again as soon as you finish tuning it and you start playing it or you even you set it down it's starting to go out of tune and you have to tune it again well the same is true for our hearts our hearts are always slowly stretching and unwinding away from the right tone and the right melody they're to have towards Jesus Christ. And so we've got to consistently, constantly, in our hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Fight to, to honor Jesus as Lord. This is the only way we'll be able to, to not be afraid by, the, by the, what's going on around us. So we recognize the potential that we will, we may suffer as sojourners. We realize that there's blessing in it now and for eternity. We we resist fear that is natural when we face opposition and, and persecution. We reverence Christ in the middle of that and we regard Him as Lord, as holy, uh, as the one who's over all. And then fifth brings us <coughs> to what this really looks like in terms of as we've been blessed by God, now we bless others. He says, you need to get ready to speak while suffering as a sojourner. That's the fifth point. You're ready to speak while suffering as a sojourner. Verse 15, partway through the verse, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for, the, for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So as we suffer for righteousness' sake, as we're, as we're unafraid, as we're actively honoring Christ as Lord and as holy, <coughs> our lives will begin to raise questions for those around us. He doesn't mean that everybody who persecutes you or everybody who observes us being persecuted is just going to come running to us and say, what must I do to be saved? That's not it. But, but your hope in the face of affliction, it's going to be puzzling to unbelievers around you. And some will ask you about it. And when they do, you need to be prepared to give an answer. A defense. Uh, this is the word, we get our word apology, not apology. Like, I'm so sorry. And we're always apologizing to everybody. That's not it. But it's, it's an answer. It's a defense. It's a legal word. We, if, you, if you've been around the church for any time, you may have heard the word apologetics. And 
usually in the context of evangelism and apologetics. But in apologetics, when you, if, you, if you're familiar with that word, you probably think of someone like uh, Ravi Zacharias or, or uh, James White or Ray Comfort or Walter Martin, somebody, one of these, these experts, one of these very well-known public Christian figures who, who's, who's known for making compelling intellectual philosophical uh, cases for Christ. <coughs> and so they they'll hold public debates and just go head to head with the leading atheists and the leading proponents of other religions in the world and and do it very skillfully and winsomely and and, and it's a it's a great service i'm not minimizing that so so but we may think when we hear this so i got to be able to do that <laughs> i got to be able to give a defense to to anybody like this i don't think that's what peter has in mind I don't think he means, alright, when, when persecution comes, you need to be ready to make this tight, lengthy, highly intellectual defense for the existence of God. Now what does he say? Always being prepared to make a defense for the reason that you hope when suffering comes. Again, I'm, I'm certainly not minimizing the place that apologetics in that sense has. Christians can and should have well-reasoned uh, intelligible, compelling arguments for God and for the gospel. But this passage isn't talking about unbelievers being won by our arguments. It's about unbelievers seeing us walk through suffering and because of Jesus we're, we're not afraid. So we answer them when they ask questions with the reasons for our hope in Christ. But it is reasons. It's not. It's not just good vibes for hope, good feelings, good energy about God. That's not what he says. He, he says it's reasons, it's truth, it's intelligible and can be communicated to other people in a way they can understand. And he says we all need to be prepared for that. When people ask us about the hope in us, we can't just say, you know, I don't really know much about that, but there's this great YouTube video, this guy named Ravi Zacharias, and, and let me send you his link, and it's, it's, it's incredible. No, he says, make sure you can give an answer for the, for the reason, for the hope that is in you. I can't be like Ravi Zacharias, I thank God for him, and others like him, but I, I can tell others why I trust in Jesus. I can give reasons for the hope that's in me. We don't have to communicate everything about God in those moments. You don't need a mini-sermon prepared. You don't need to recreate a church service. You don't have pews and uh, sit down and and, uh, open your Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen, that kind of thing. It's not that. It's it's, it's just being able to say one or two reasons why we hope in, why we trust in Jesus. So be prepared. Be prepared for that. That's what he's saying. Always prepared. Preparation is not... Uh, is is not does not mean inauthenticity. I know we we sometimes think like that. So you, you, we it's okay to have thought this through, to have some answers ready and some stock answers. And this is where I go in these conversations. When if you're dating or if you're married, I hope that you don't think like this. But uh, if 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 I prepare for uh, a date or even a little getaway for Brooke and I, and I, you know, make reservations well in advance and, and book all that. She doesn't, when that day comes, and when I surprise her with that, she doesn't say, huh, I, spontaneity is what I'm looking for. You know, preparation, that's not sincere. You've spent all this time, you should just do this on the fly. No, that, that, that's not, that's a, preparation communicates love. So in evangelism, some people are like, I just want it to flow from my heart. That's good. But make sure that it's that you're prepared so that it flows somewhere. That you're going in a direction. Have something that you want to communicate and know what you want to say and know, know a reason that that's so that's compelling to you that you hope and trust in Jesus. And then he qualifies this. He says we're to be always ready to share the reason for the hope that's in us, but never in a proud confrontational, combative way. He says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I've known some Christians, not many, but I've known some personally who who would call themselves evangelists and apologists even, 
but they're really, they're jerks who use the name of Jesus. <laughs> There's this arrogance about them and they, and they seek to intimidate unbelievers. And, they, and I would say, they, it seems that they're, I don't know the motives of their heart, but it's almost like they're trying to show off to Christians. Because some of them, they have buddies, record them on their cell phone cameras, and they post these videos on YouTube of them going toe-to-toe with an atheist or something like that. Like it's this big showdown. This bravado. But, but, this, but through the rhetoric, through their aggressive posture, and, and that's not what Peter's talking about when he says, always be ready. He says, no, with gentleness respect if we're combative like this and answering unbelievers what it's actually manifesting is we don't get what he said earlier when he says don't be afraid it's a lack of gentleness a lack of respect is really it has roots that go down into fear what i mean is if the fear is it may be this that, that those who oppose us those who disagree with us if if I'm afraid they're going to walk away from the conversation thinking that they're right and I'm wrong. And I want them to know that I'm right and they're wrong. And it may be the fear that we don't believe that God is going to fight on our behalf. Like it's up, I've got to do this. It's on me. It's it's unbelief. It's I don't believe He's with me in this, so I've got to use whatever I have at my disposal, the force of my will, my intellect, my wit, my sarcasm, my personality, to force this. And that's we don't have to be afraid, and therefore we can we can give an answer with gentleness, with respect. My guess is, though, most of us struggle with fear that manifests itself more in silence than in being uh, than than a lack of gentleness. I think this is true for most of us. But Peter encourages us in the face of suffering for righteousness, always be ready. Hardships, pain, difficulties, they can become these wonderful opportunities for witness. And that's true of persecution. I know some of you can bear testimony to this. It's true in any kind of suffering. Disease, death, loss. These are great opportunities for witness. Six, I'm going to hit these last two really quick. Sixth point is this. Retain a good conscience while suffering as a sojourner. Retain a good conscience. He says in verse 16, Having a good conscience, a clear conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So as we're courageous, this is what I think he's saying, and I'm just going to summarize this quickly. As we're courageous in the face of opposition, and, and we're able to witness with gentleness and respect to our faith in Christ, we, we, we have and we can keep this clear conscience. I, I think Peter has in mind his own failures on that night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested. I think Peter probably has in mind, again, his denials of Jesus out of fear. And, and he did so with words that were neither gentle or respectful. Um, by saying, you, you, you can maintain a good conscience if you live this way. And not only that, when we do that, those who slander us for our good behavior in Christ, he says, will be put to shame. Now that's not some passive-aggressive form of, of retaliation. <laughs> like, I'm going to be gentle and respectful to you so that, man, I can heap the shame and, and humiliation on you. That's not what Peter's saying. The idea is that your behavior will bring those who are persecuting to a, a proper sense of shame over what they're doing. That you can be used by God's Spirit as a source of conviction by your good behavior. I think that's what he's saying. Just like a gentle answer turns away wrath, a good conscience continuing to do what is right and manifest good behavior, it's, it can help silence those who seek your harm. Last Last point, and I'm just going to state it, and we'll read the verse. Uh, verse 17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. It's a self-explanatory, and it's a summary of what we've been looking at. Remember that suffering as a sojourner is better than sinning. It's, it's always better to suffer for righteousness' sake than to, than to suffer because of our sin. And so as sojourners, we must be prepared to, to suffer as those who have been blessed by God uh, to bless others. We recognize that potential that will suffer as sojourners. We realize that there's blessing in it. We, we resist fear. We reverence Christ while we're in the midst of that and honor Him as, as Lord. We 
get ready to speak up with giving a gentle and respectful answer for our hope. We, we retain a clear conscience as we do that. We remember that suffering is always better than sinning. All right, let me just give a couple concluding thoughts. How do we, how do we respond to this crazy passage? Uh, one application I think is this. Think about and pray often. Think about and pray often for the persecuted church. Um, be aware. Use the, use the prayer guide, Operation World, and just just know. Re, watch headlines and read it. Not uh, not just for to make a, a, an argument at the water cooler about some political issue, but but read it. Read the headlines with an eye towards if 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 this is happening in the world. Church must be suffering in some really unique ways, and so pray for them. Uh, connected to that, read biographies of saints who have suffered for the gospel, who have even been martyred for their faith in Christ. Why, why would we do that? Because, because their, their deaths, their lives and their deaths, they remind us that Christ and the gospel are more precious and more valuable than anything else in the world. I mean, children, and I just speak to you, I don't want to try to be morbid or anything like that, but... but uh, John Rogers, who was um, who was burned alive at the stake in England in 1955, he hit for his because of his faith in Christ. His children went with him to the place of his execution, and, they, and as as he's being burned alive, they're calling out through tears. Witnesses say encouragements to their dad. They're, they're, they're calling out and reminding him of promises from the Lord. Stay strong in the Lord. Uh, they, they, they don't want their dad to dishonor him, even in his death. And so, again, just let's, parents, let's, let's make sure our kids understand the, the, the weight of what's at stake here. Second, Set your gaze on heaven. We've spoke to this already. When, when our thought of eternity and heaven and this future inheritance that Peter's been speaking about, when, when our thoughts about that are small, then these present momentary light afflictions will seem huge and will seem unending. But when our thought of the presence of God and eternity with Him, when, when that is big, our trials will begin to seem smaller. So think often about heaven. Third, choose the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. I don't mean go out from here and look for persecution (laughs) and look for hard things to enter into. No, I mean don't make it your aim to walk out this door and try to insulate yourself from every possible form of suffering and persecution. That's what we're inclined to do. Don't make it your goal to hide from any potential of suffering for righteousness sake and just, just kind of hang on huddled in a corner until Jesus comes back and try to build our little safe space. But this is how we can often think. We, our, our goal in life is to avoid it. So what do we have to do? Then? Place yourself around unbelievers. Don't, don't, again, don't cut yourself off from the world. The world that is at, at times very hostile to Christianity. Because why? It's, it's, it's from this world that Jesus is calling His sheep to Himself. And he wants to use us as we, as we give an answer, give reasons for the hope that's in us. He will use us. It's easy for us to go to church with Christians and have Bible study with Christians and go to a Christian school or homeschool and just with our family and work, with, work out with other believers and, and you know, play in sports leagues with other believers and only eat at Chick-fil-A and on you know, and on. So we just we just try to create this little bubble for ourselves, and and this is this is not what Peter is encouraging these believers. You guys buy some land and hole up, build a compound, put a gate up, put a fence up, and just hang on till Jesus gets back. No, he's saying that's what we've been looking at in chapter two. You're, you're citizens, and you have governing authorities that are over you, and sometimes they're harsh. But this is, you need to leave, live as a light, as a Christian in that context, and in marriage, and in slave master and employer employee relationships. You, we, we, we're in the world, and it's gonna, you're gonna suffer for it at times. But these are great opportunities for us to, to again bear witness to the gospel. But more than anything, we, we, we need to go away from here looking to Jesus. 
And this is, this is where Peter goes next. It's, it's the same thing that he did back in chapter 2 in the context of, of this submissive relationships and very difficult relationships and applying what it looks like to live as sojourners in this world. And he says, just like in chapter 2, Jesus is our example of this, but he's so much more. He's our substitute. He's our redeemer. And so the life of a suffering sojourner that we cannot ever live perfectly, Christ lived it for us. He did it. And we're identified with Him. And so it's not like, alright, church, just you know, pull up your bootstraps and just toughen up and quit whining and go out and suffer for Jesus and, and it's on you. No. As soon as Peter, I mean, he is saying, don't be afraid and be prepared. Give an answer and honor Christ the Lord is holy in the world that you're living in. And be prepared to suffer as sojourners. And when you do, you'll be blessed. So he's, he is saying some of those things and he's giving those exhortations. But as soon as he says that, he keeps coming back to, and look at it in verse 18, the very next verse. For Christ also suffered. And we can just end right there. Christ suffered. That's enough. But that's where the similarity ends. I think that's the connection with verse 18, but that's where the similarity stops. Christ also suffered once for sins. You don't do that. The righteous for the unrighteous. That He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So, Our greatest hope is not what we can do by endurance, but our greatest hope is what Christ has done in bringing us to God, making us alive in the Spirit because of His work, because of His suffering in our place. And so we look to Him and we, 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 we take comfort that our, our future is secure. And so that helps us then to endure whatever comes in the present. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for we thank you for these truths and I I know that there may be some that think, man, this seems so um, different from where I'm living. And we we're not facing the enormity of the threats that these readers were facing and and, and the opposition we encounter it looks very different, but I, I I pray, Father, that even so, that we will not uh, we will not aim to insulate and isolate ourselves from potential suffering. We won't seek it, and we thank God for the blessing of living where we do and enjoying the freedoms and the these mercies that we have. But we pray that as we do uh, live as sojourners, as exiles, as strangers in this world, Father, when we encounter suffering, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted in some way at some time. I pray that we will not be afraid. We will see that Christ, you are Lord. There's none like you. Our hearts will rest in you. That we will be ready to give an answer. And ultimately that we'll look to Jesus and the one who has suffered for us and has has brought us to 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 the God. And so, as those who are secure in Christ, may we, may we never feel insecure in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.